think the fact that Paul addresses wives first and children mm -hmm. first and slaves first, that ordering would have caught their attention. I don't think we catch that in, in uh, at least in the United States now, but in the ancient world, you definitely would defer to the superordinate in the yeah. group uh, first and mm -hmm. um, Paul for sure does not. So I think even in, in the very structuring of, of his language, uh, of the ordering, he's calling into question how the Greco-Roman world gives worth. Hey everyone, welcome to Faith in the Fold, a podcast for ministry, biblical studies, and Christian living. I'm your host, Kevin Berg. Today I sat down with Dr. Lynn Kohick, Provost and Dean of Academic Affairs at Northern Seminary in Illinois. Dr. Kohick has been teaching in different venues across the globe for decades. She's an expert in women in the world of the early church, and she has recently written a wonderful commentary on one of my favorite books of the Bible, Paul's Letter to the Ephesians. I had a delightful time meeting and talking with Dr. Kohick about this short but powerful letter, and I hope you're blessed by what she has to say as well. If you enjoy the kinds of conversations we're having here on the podcast, would you be willing to like and subscribe to us and maybe share us with someone you think it might benefit from this? And as always, thank you so much for tuning in today. Well, Dr. Kohick, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. It is a treat to be able to talk with you about Paul's letter to the Ephesians, a perennial favorite for a lot of folks and for good reason. Thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thank you, Kevin, for the invitation. I'm excited to talk about this letter that I love. So, yeah, yeah. And this is, um, I, I hate to say it because it, it, it feels like rooting for the team that always wins, but I think I think Ephesians is probably my favorite letter from Paul also. And so this, I mean, we're in good company here. You know, it's like people who say that the Gospel of John is their favorite gospel. It's like, okay, well, it's everybody's favorite gospel. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it feels right. like everybody's favorite gospel. Yeah. 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 So, Dr. Kohick, tell, uh, help us uh, get to know you a little bit better. I know folks who, uh, who are in a formal uh, academic biblical studies uh, will be familiar with your work, but uh, for other folks who maybe are coming from a church audience or, or have expertise elsewhere, they might not know you uh, as much. What got you into uh, studying the New Testament? What got you into teaching? Uh, help us uh, kind of get to know you a little bit and maybe what, uh, what piqued your interest in Ephesians along the way. Sure, sure. Well, I, uh, I do love to teach. And my mom says that, uh, you know, I, I taught my younger brother and sister as much as, <laughs> as much as they'd let me. So I think I've always been a teacher. And I, um, I dabbled a bit in college with doing young children and realized okay. that for their safety, <laughs> and my <laughs> mental health, I should probably not, I just didn't have the gifts and the skills. And uh, they, uh, uh, they scared me too much, you know. So I thought, let's let's go with uh, with older uh, students. And um, I also found uh, I love history. And when I was in high school, I had uh, a very strong uh, religious experience, maybe say born again experience, and just fell in love with reading scripture. And I thought, if I combine both of those and get my PhD and be able to teach, well, that would be perfect. Yeah. Uh, so took me a number of years to get my PhD. Um, and during that time, uh, my husband and I also started a family. And I used to sometimes wonder if my children and I, they'd be graduating from high school the same time I'd be getting my PhD. <laughs> <laughs> but fortunately, uh, I was able to, uh, to finish a little before then. Um, and, uh, and then went, uh, went on to teach for about 18 years at Wheaton College, hmm. where I taught um, in the Bible and theology department, and thoroughly loved that. And it, uh, during that time, um, I also grew interested in, and I guess I was always interested in the Pauline material um, and in the, in the um, 
historical church, especially the early church, how did um, Christians get along with each other or not sometimes? Um, how did um, Christians and Jews in the early centuries, how did they get along? Uh, I was interested in how men and women in the church and in the wider Greco-Roman world um, interacted with each other. So kind of the social world, the history, yeah. as well as then the biblical text, that interested me quite a bit. And when the opportunity came along to write a commentary on Ephesians, I was very excited to do that because that letter is all about the church. Yeah. And that was uh, you know, from a theological standpoint, from a cultural standpoint, sociological standpoint, all of those things are right there in the letter. And so uh, that really drew me to, uh, to write the commentary on yeah, yeah. It's uh, it, and for folks who who are familiar with uh, with Ephesians, there really is so much about um, about you know, kind of the the church as a, as a unit, the church as a unity. Um, it, it's and I think that's one of the reason why it's a perennial favorite is there. There's you, you can kind of look at it in, in similar ways to uh, to Philippians, at least for the calls of unity. But Ephesians does really seem to drive home, you know, kind of bringing together these two disparate groups, kind of into one sort of uh, really new, new group, new creation, new humanity. Yeah, yeah. Well, so getting to the letter of Ephesians, then um, one of the things that I've been asking, you know, all of the people that I've been interviewing to kind of help us uh, really get to get to a better understanding of each book or each letter we're looking at is to start off with a question, what is the genre or what's the literary category of, uh, of Ephesians and, and kind of what does that tell us about how we should understand this letter and, and maybe how we can kind of better in interpret it uh, for today? Yeah, thank you. Well, it is a letter, um, but that I, I think that doesn't really fully capture how we should understand it. It's not mm -hmm. like a letter. Well, for example, I wrote a couple of thank you notes over the um, weekend, and clearly this is not a thank you note, right? Um, <laughs> right. I used yeah. to write letters uh, to my grandma and receive letters from my grandma when uh, we lived in Kenya. My husband and I, when our children were young, we lived for three years in Kenya. Mm -hmm. She would write me letters. I would write her letters, filling uh, just keeping connected and filling each other in on how things were going. That's also not what Paul is doing, although it gets a little closer because he is trying to stay in touch uh, yeah. with his congregations. But I think the, the thing to um, keep in mind is that these letters were a substitute, and Paul might say a poor substitute, for his own presence there at the, in the congregation. Mm -hmm. So he... Um, he wanted to be there, and in lieu of that, he would write this letter. Now, the letters would have been drafted. He had someone uh, experienced in, um, in writing them down, maybe in like a wax tablet or something like that, and then he could look at the draft, maybe make some changes if he wanted to. So again, it's not like when I would sit down and write to my grandma and you know, just all in one sitting write it down. Right. Yeah. Paul, Paul would have worked on, on this uh, sometimes with other people because um, mm -hmm. sometimes there are co-senders with his letter and we're not entirely sure what, what those co-senders did, but I think at, at least Paul felt that he, that his ideas were shared by those um, like Sosthenes uh, yeah. with whom he uh, writes first Corinthians. And then um he sends a letter out and he might have kept a copy of that of that letter himself. That was a pretty typical practice. Um, but the other thing to keep in mind is that when the letter was delivered, it would be read aloud to the congregation. And yeah. we might say it was performed. I don't know if you've ever um, seen on stage someone read an, um, an actor read like the gospel of Mark or something along those, but it brings scripture to life in, in a dynamic way. And so these letter carriers who would be uh, friends of Paul's part of his ministry team, they would read the letter aloud. So Phoebe reading uh, Romans, for example, um, they, they take the letter, they read the letter and presumably, if there are questions, they can address some of those right. uh, questions as well. 
Um, and so the, the letter is to be listened to, not just read. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a, a practice that perhaps we can re, reinvigorate today in our maybe our small group Bible studies, or even on our own, we can listen to someone read the, the scripture um, or read it aloud ourselves. To me, hearing the letter, and I don't watch watch the, the the biblical text when the letter is read. Sometimes I just shut my eyes and and just listen. Let the words uh, sink in through my ears. Yeah. Um, is that that's how the earliest believers and many Christians today uh, absorb the text? So yeah, and then I I would say finally that these letters demonstrate Paul's. Um, rhetorical ability he he is able to express himself well so that his he's organized he uh, wants to persuade of the gospel truth he wants to encourage he wants to inspire but what he doesn't want to do is sound so sophisticated <laughs> that people turn their attention more to his you know erudite writing and forget the gospel message. And yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. I think for, for some folks, it might be surprising to them to learn the entire process from Paul having this idea or hearing this report and then crafting a letter, sometimes with the help of an associate, however that looked. And you're right to mention, for example, Sosthenes as uh, listed as a co-sender, we normally think of the letters of Paul, and, and that's true, right? He's, he's the main generator of the content and, and structure and style and all that. But we also see Paul and Timothy as another, another co-sender. And then you're right to mention Phoebe's there in Romans chapter 16. Um, I, know this, I know this is not about Romans, but that language there that Paul uses that I commend Phoebe uh, to to y'all, that language of commendation, that would have been pretty standard language in the ancient world, right? For for giving somebody basically a what amounts to a, a letter of recommendation. It, it, is that fair? Yes, absolutely, absolutely. She's trusted to be able to read the letter, um, and in our in Ephesians, it's Tychicus, right? Who at the mm -hmm. end, uh, Paul indicates um, he'll tell you everything right? He'll, he'll right. fill you in on how I'm doing. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that, that's what the church would expect is they would hear this letter read. Um, you know, and I, if I could just parenthetically say, I wonder how those who had positions of authority granted to them by society, uh, husbands, slave owners, uh, parents, those uh, come to mind uh, from chapters five and six of Ephesians. Paul publicly speaks to them about not abusing the authority that yeah. is given them by, by society. And I would go so far as to say he really uh, challenges them based on the gospel of the cross to rethink just what, uh, what it looks like uh, what since Christ himself uh, gave himself for yeah. the church. And reading that publicly means everybody else heard that as well. So when Paul says to father, stop exasperating your children, mm -hmm. all the kids heard that, <laughs> you know? And uh, so I, I that's, you can see that's some a, sideways glances in, in, uh, the, oh, in yeah. the meeting oh, there yeah. too. Dad, little, did you hear that? Uh, right, right kids snickering in the background yeah 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 that uh, since we're on that and this is this is kind of an aside but but since we're on that would that have been unusual for for a, a public um for like some kind of public moral teaching like that to direct the positions of authority rather than say you know the uh, the the, the quote-unquote submissive groups would that have been unusual in that time pretty much unheard of. Um, I think the fact that Paul addresses wives first and children mm -hmm. first and slaves first, that ordering would have caught their attention. I don't think we 
uh, catch that in, in uh, at least in the United States now. Uh, but in the ancient world, um, you definitely would defer to the uh, superordinate in the yeah. group uh, first. And mm -hmm. um, Paul for sure does not. So I think even in, in the very structuring of, of his language, uh, of the ordering, yeah, he, um, he's calling into question how the Greco-Roman world gives worth to people. Yeah. And he claims over and over again, as he will also between the Jews and the Gentiles, that our worth is rooted in Christ. Mm. And that's how we understand each other. That's why he can talk about brothers and sisters yeah. um, and use that language, that language of kinship. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Paul, at, at, at different times, maybe presses this harder uh, in some instances than others, but Paul generally disallows sort of cultural values to, to infiltrate how he um, how he addresses folks and how he interacts with folks that, that seems to be pretty pretty common. Right, I think he you know the, in general the Greco-Roman world promoted honor, honoring those who deserve to be honored. So children mm -hmm. should honor their parents, absolutely. But then he says, okay, when when the society or the culture overlays that honor with a denigration of self worth with some kids, let's say slave children, yeah. that's where the gospel steps in and says, nope, we, we, uh, we might be okay with honor, but we're honoring every, everyone uh, who is a brother or sister in Christ. Christ is in them. And so we honor them. Yeah. And even, even taking it a step further to perhaps a more extreme example, children are to be honored in the sense that they are not to be exposed. Christians are not supposed to expose their children. Um, I, this might be wild. I, I never thought I'd ever say this to anybody, but just a minute ago, I was reading some selections from the epistle to Diognetus to our youth minister here at church. Because <laughs> that's great. what you do, right? All I right. mean, sure. <laughs> if you knew this church around here, it wouldn't, it wouldn't surprise you that much. Um, we, uh, the, the main preaching minister and I, I'm what would be considered an associate, my title is discipleship minister, but I'm technically and what would be considered an associate minister associate pastor he and i grew up together at the same church went to the same undergraduate institution went to the same graduate institution uh for our mdivs and so it's it's a big nerd fest a lot of times and, and everybody else has just gotten used to that um <laughs> but i was reading the selection from chapter five of the epistle to diagnetus to uh, to our youth minister and it it mentions how you know christians uh, you know, they, they marry like everybody else and they have children, but they don't expose their children. And that's another way of showing honor in a way that's very faithful, I would say, to Jesus's statement, let the little children come to me. Don't hinder them. Well, right. Yeah. yeah. And it, it was true with uh, Jew, the Jewish community as well mm -hmm. at, at that time over against the, uh, the Gentile pagans. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. This is, uh, that was a fascinating little aside that we, <laughs> that we traveled down there. Um, but as a letter, okay, so as a letter, Paul is, uh, Paul is writing to these folks, not just, not just to, uh, to say, hey, um, although he is wanting to remain connected to them, he's wanting them to kind of see, um, see the importance of their unity in Christ. Uh, could you dig into that theme a little bit, our unity in Christ? And or maybe are there a couple of other major emphases or themes in Ephesians that we could uh, talk about for a little bit? Sure, sure. Yes, I'd love to talk about the, the uh, ecclesi uh, ecclesiology or the study of the church mm. in there. I would say another uh, uh, strong theme that I see or major emphasis would be Trinity, okay. even though that's not um, the term itself would would not be found in the letter, but you have God, the father, God, the son, and God, the Holy spirit mm -hmm. throughout, including in the first chapter, um, which has from verse three through 14, one continuous, uh, sentence yeah. in, uh, in Greek. So, um, <laughs> and if folks aren't, if folks aren't familiar with that, um, it, I think it bears repeating from, from verse three to yeah. verse 14 in Greek, now, the original Greek had very little in the way of punctuation, uh, again, for folks who might not be familiar, but it, it's clear based on the structure and kind of how things are, are arranged 
um, and how the sentence is put together, that this is one rich, dense, run-on sentence that might fail Paul in a uh, in like a master's level class, <laughs> but it makes for it makes for beautiful theology. It does, and it has a liturgical rhythm to it uh, mm. that you find quite a bit, I think, in uh, a celebratory uh, that you have in in Ephesians, and it starts in verse three with God the Father, God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, and uh, by uh, towards the end we also have uh, the Holy Spirit. Mm -hmm. which seals us unto the day of redemption. So yeah. Trinity uh, is throughout. Um, but yes, the at the end of chapter one, you have Paul um, highlighting how uh, the church is Christ's body. Mm -hmm. And that emphasis on body, that metaphor of the church as Christ's body, gets developed in a couple of different ways throughout Ephesians that that's beautiful he uh, because the body is so interconnected so it will get developed in terms of how we grow and mature together that would be in chapter four um, and and it, there's that necessity we need all of it we need the muscles we need the bones we need the uh, appendages we need the um, yeah, all of it, you know, the yeah. stomach, <laughs> mm -hmm. um, all of that to grow up together. Um, so there's that piece. Um, also, um, we, we understand who Christ is. Christ is the head. And uh, while well, that term, uh, head, uh, the Greek term is kephale, which means that globe that sits between your shoulder blades on your neck, uh, most of the time, that's what it means, a literal head, mm -hmm. um, but it can be used at times metaphorically. And I think in Ephesians, Paul wants to stress uh, Christ as Savior, as the one who uh, died and is now raised so, so that he has this body, the church, as his own. And, uh, and so we see a little bit of that in chapter five. Um, and then um, at the, uh, as Paul develops also this image of body, he wants to talk about Jew and Gentile becoming one, one new humanity, he'll say uh, in chapter two, verse 14 and following. Mm -hmm. And there, it's not so much that Christ is head, but Christ is peace. And as the one who brings peace, he creates this one new humanity. So in several different ways, Paul uh, just uses this body, Christ, uh, the Christ's body as church. He uses that metaphor that just stimulates our imagination. Um, yeah, so that... Um, yeah, that, that would be, I would say, one of the key emphases mm -hmm. um, that makes Ephesians just a delight to read and study. Yeah, yeah. Um, I know you had mentioned before we started recording that you've got your Bible there with you. Is it okay if we take a look at chapter two uh, for just a little bit? And I, I didn't prompt you for this, but I, I, I don't think that this will be, I don't think this will be too hard for us to dig into because uh, I've got a text here in front of me as well. Um, the very beginning of chapter two mentions a, um, I, I can, I can read from, uh, read from chapter two verses, it basically verses one and, uh, one and two. Um, cause I, I want to ask you kind of to help folks understand maybe Paul's worldview here. Um, <clears throat> listeners of the podcast, uh, who are kind enough to kind of stick with me this long, I'll refer you to an episode I did, I, th I think episode episode 26, where I had a, um, a, a, a fellow Asbury student who had just finished up his doctorate um, and a former missionary to northern Mozambique talk about authority and allegiance um, in, in Revelation. And then one of the important things about just kind of what my, my, what my missionary friend was wanting to do was to to help 
translate not just words into this Makua Meto language that uh, that he was working with his friends in northern Mozambique, but to translate concepts and big ideas and and help help take images from their images of authority from their culture and help them see how you know, maybe translate those kinds of images into what we kind of see in things like revelation and a lot of that dealt with dealt with worldview and so i want to read ephesians 2 1 and 2 and maybe you can talk to us a little bit about paul's worldview here so paul says you were dead through the trespasses and sins in which you once lived following the course of this world following the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work among those who are disobedient. And for those of you who are curious, it's from the New Revised Standard Version. Help us, uh, Dr. Kohick, if you don't mind, help us uh, kind of dig into Paul's worldview here a little bit. It seems like this is a very spiritually infused worldview. Yes. Uh, and how might that different maybe say from a typical Western or American Christians worldview? Uh, it, it, if you're willing to dig into that with us. Oh yeah, sure, sure. And I'm glad you mentioned that it's a Western view because there are uh, Christians in other parts of the uh, of the globe um, who wouldn't share this kind of uh, yeah. post enlightenment um, materialistic view of of the world. Um, for Paul, there, there are created beings that are spiritual beings. That's mm -hmm. just how they're created. And so that, that they don't have a material sense in the way that our bodies are, are seen. Um, you know, we don't see the air, but the air holds up an airplane, you know? Yeah. And so maybe in a, in a way we kind of know that there is a, a, a texture or a thickness sometimes yeah. to things we can't see um, but by and large we don't really as a culture give much thought to uh, evil uh, personified in a spiritual sense we do give attention to evil deeds that people do or we sure. should mm -hmm. um, so for paul he he believes that there is an evil force that um, is uh, controlling or operating or, uh, yes, has authority uh, in the, the uh, over the affairs of humans. Yeah. Um, and uh, we could think of like uh, Christ's temptations where uh, Satan said to, uh, to Christ, if you just bow down to me, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world because those are mine, you know, to give. So drawing yeah. on on that kind of um, of image, uh, Paul would also hold that this world uh, is not some neutral space, but is actually a contested space, a spiritually contested space. Mm -hmm. Paul would also say that there are angelic beings that are uh, positive towards God, and there are also just forces um, that that are created that don't necessarily um, have sway over humans one way or another, um, but just simply are those powers and principalities that he'll mention in chapter three, um, the, the uh, rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms that are now seeing this richness of God's gospel being made known, namely that uh, Gentiles can share in the salvation uh, in Christ that the Jews also have as mm -hmm. Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. So, so uh, Paul, in almost every chapter, and I'm so glad you brought up this question, because in almost every chapter of Ephesians, there is this sense that there's more than what we can just see in front yeah. of us. So even in chapter one, um, verse 21 far above mm -hmm. all rule and authority power and dominion and every name that is invoked so there there's uh that it christ is above all of of those things can i ask a quick question about yeah. name that is name i i didn't know that we were going to take this turn but this is really fascinating at least for me I, I i hope our listeners are appreciating this as well 
when he mentions every name that is invoked there uh, about midway through verse 21, is he talking about, is he talking about magic or it, it, it help us kind of understand what Paul is, is trying to say here. Oh, that's very possible. Um, especially given in uh, chapter 19 of the book of Acts, where we know that magic, uh, I mean, it was throughout the Roman Empire, but there's a special time, a special mention by Luke of the magical texts that are destroyed um, in, in Ephesus. Um, so yes, I think that that absolutely could be what uh, part at least of what Paul is, uh, is referring to here. Um, that the, there's, and, and he may not know more specifics than sure. that. Yeah. Um, given well, and, the, and in his in his time, um, for the sake of for the sake of our listeners, in his time there, it was common among a lot of Jewish persons, especially Jewish intellectuals like Paul, would have ranked among um, speculation about. It angelic beings and the spiritual forces was really kind of at an all-time high mm -hmm. um, yeah. when you compare say with what you see in well it, it, in the earliest portions of the old testament right? right you get an occasional strange mention here and there of, of some spiritual entity um you know maybe like genesis 6 or you know some, something else along those lines but for for a, a apologize for i'm so excited i'm hitting my microphone oh. um <laughs> For for someone in in the Second Temple period, there was a lot of Jewish speculation on on, on these kinds of things, and so maybe you're you're right. Maybe he uh, he doesn't need to be specific, or maybe he doesn't know all need to know all the specifics. But you know, is, is comfortable in, in saying that you know, although I might not know the names of all of these spiritual entities out there, Christ has far surpassed all of them you know, by means of his ascension. Is that kind of a fair way to, to put that? Oh, absolutely. And I would invite your reader, your listeners to uh, turn to Colossians as well. You know, the city of Colossae wasn't too far away mm -hmm. uh, from Ephesus. And we know that there was this aberrant philosophy that the Colossians were susceptible to. And that a lot of that was about the speculation of these right. kind of esoteric uh, thoughts, speculation about beings and planets and stars. And of course, the larger Greco-Roman world uh, uh, was fearful of fate and mm -hmm. the, uh, as you mentioned, the power of magic and the evil eye. And so they used amulets and spells and all of those quite fierce. Uh, there, there was a lot of fear. There was a lot of fear. And so by Paul emphasizing Christ's greatness over all of that, as he does to the Ephesians, but also to the uh, Colossians, you know, that was a, could bring a, a measure of comfort uh, to, uh, to them. So I, I also wanted to add in chapter two that you mentioned, um, I am persuaded that Paul is distinguishing here between the Gentile believers in the congregation and uh, the Jews, which would include him. Um, when he says, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions, I yeah. think that he is describing their life before they were in Christ. Mm -hmm. And when he gets to chapter or to verse three, all of us also lived among them, gratifying the cravings of our flesh. I think what Paul is saying there is that as a Jew, he's not in any way sinless, and he's still uh, under God's judgment because we all sin. But he's recognizing that as a Jew, he knew the one true God and, and could recognize that um, these there, there were there was the devil, there was the spiritual bad forces over which God had uh, sovereignty. Mm -hmm. And of course, Paul understands that even more now that he is uh, in Christ. So yeah. I think um, that all comes finally um, at the end of Ephesians in chapter six, when he asks uh, believers to put on the armor of God. 
But I love that he says in 612, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, the authorities, the power of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And today, whatever in the West or in the United States that we might ignore about spiritual forces, just given our reliance on um, a materialistic view yeah. of things, we could really use Paul's advice here in terms of our conversation with each other, especially mm -hmm. in public, <laughs> you know, that especially yeah. Christians should recognize that our struggle is not against another person, <laughs> yeah. but is uh, that there are forces that um, seek to pull us apart. And um, we, we have the armor of God to, uh, to protect us from that. Mm -hmm. um, but we want to, we want to reckon correctly with who we're actually fighting against, who really is the bad guy. And it, it probably is not the fellow believer down the street with whom you have a doctrinal disagreement. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I'm very well stated. You had mentioned something earlier that reminded me again of this other uh, interview that I was able to do um, maybe a month or so ago at the time of recording. Um, my, my friend who had done missionary work in northern Mozambique described the, um, described the culture there as, uh, to some degree, an honor-shame culture, uh, which is common for uh, a, a lot of cultures outside of uh, maybe western areas. Um, he said there was not much degree of kind of a guilt innocence culture, which uh, tends to typify, I think, more Western areas. And, and there are nuances to be made uh, all around because within subcultures within the U.S., there's very much honor and shame. <laughs> Have you ever seen The Godfather, right? I mean, there's very much honor and shame uh, cultures, subcultures within the U.S. But he also mentioned that amongst the the folks where he was working there was a, a there was kind of a, a fear power dynamic and and you uh, I, I have uh, correctly mentioned that there was a great fear of fate and the evil eye and uh, you know needing what we would call superstitious protections you know amulets and things like that uh, common in the ancient world. It's fascinating to see if you can see that dynamic kind of at play behind um, Paul's letter here. That really opens up our eyes to some things. Um, would you mind uh, talking about that just for a moment? How Paul kind of plays, how, how Paul encourages believers to see that they spiritually, that they should overcome their fear because of the power available to them in in christ who who is seated in the heavenly realms i didn't word that very eloquently but, no but you you touched but, but does exactly. that make sense yes and it's a great segue because i literally was going to go with we're seated with christ i think, I think it was providential the things, then. yeah exactly <laughs> uh one of the emphases in ephesians is this notion that we are with christ mm -hmm. we are in christ we are with christ and uh, to me, it, it is just amazing as we look at um, verse four, because of, uh, of chapter two, because mm -hmm. of God's great love for us. And that's another key theme uh, in the letter. Um, I love us, how you described it in your commentary. Paul gives us kind of a before and after look. I, I hadn't heard it quite put like that. I, th that made you know, that intuitively made sense. But I, I read that earlier today because it's my favorite passage in Ephesians. Like, oh, that's cool. I like that. Um, thank you, um, that he made us alive with Christ, and he raised us up with Christ, and he seated us with Christ, and if you think about that, um, it's like we're, we're not in the danger zone anymore. Mm -hmm. um, I confess to you, I don't really like flying. Um, I don't mind sitting on a plane, like I'm not worried about the small space that way, and I'm happy to taxi out onto the runway. It doesn't really bother me as we gather speed. It's when we lift off <laughs> that I think, oh, you know, and uh, so anyway, uh, but I feel like, you know, I feel protected when I'm there in the seat on the ground, right? Mm -hmm. But I don't like up in the air. 
and in kind of a reverse way, I think we could say we're we're actually seated comfortably, securely with Christ. Yeah. Uh, now it's granted it's in the heavenlies, but you know, uh, yeah. You know, well, my theory heights, a, I'm sure, wouldn't bother me then. <laughs> That's right. We have a um, we have a seal, right? Yes. And that yes. seal of the Holy Spirit, that seal indicates ownership. Is That's that right. fair? Yeah. That's right. And so there's uh, what I find amazing as Paul is going to talk to us about how how we should rightly live in Christ, how we should treat each other, mm -hmm. um, what what the church looks like. Spends a lot of time on that, but he starts with where we are, shall I say, positionally. Like we should never forget that we are seated with Christ. We should never forget that we are with him. We are raised up with Christ. I mean, that that's the truth of our salvation. And we're kind of in two places at once, if mm -hmm. you will. Um, and that that hopefully should help us with the fear that when we put on God's armor, it's not because there's a question of who's going to win this battle. It, it's just protection to get us through what we know is already for sure coming, which mm -hmm. is Christ. And Paul will talk about in the uh, early verses of chapter five, the kingdom of Christ and of God. That's our inheritance. And that's another theme that he stresses quite a bit in, um, in Ephesians is this notion of inheritance, which for most people in the ancient world, they would really not have much of an inheritance at all, since people, uh, uh, um, I, I don't want to say that they were all subsistence living because right, yeah. because they there might be shop owners there were there were shop owners they had that but in terms of inheritance what would i what would my children gain from me uh very very little uh in in the jewish community uh the land if they still had uh the the land that could be passed down mm -hmm. um but you know there's there's not an uh, a whole lot. And then you think about the uh, slaves who are part of the congregations, maybe 20% or so people estimate, they'll, they don't have any inheritance at all, right. humanly speaking, but they have an inheritance in the Lord. And so there's this forward movement seated with Christ in the heavenlies, having an inheritance that's awaiting you that, that, uh, invites the Ephesians to kind of look up, if you will, to look forward, to look to the horizon line, even though Paul's also asking them to pay attention to what's happening here and now and recognizing there are some dangers that you have to protect yourself from, mm -hmm. and you need to think about how you treat each other uh, in the church so as not to grieve the Holy Spirit. Yeah, yeah. I'm struck by a kind of a pair of dual realities that, that the Christian experiences on a daily basis a common way of talking about Christian life is that you live in the already and not yet, right? The kingdom of exactly. God is already here to some degree, but not yet fully here. Christians on, as well are, spirit, are spiritually located in some degree in the heavenly realms, but are still also firmly kind of planted here on, uh, on earth. That's... Um, goodness gracious, that gives so much more significance and substance to a Christian's life than just do these good things and you'll go to heaven when you die. Oh, yes. And, and I think, you know, you touched on angst and fear, which was definitely present in the ancient world. And if we've ever had a time in our country or the United States or in the world with this pandemic, this global pandemic, mm. wow, I think we all can relate to this fear, this anxiety that permeates things. And so I've gone time and again to the prayer that Paul offers in chapter three. Mm -hmm. And, you know, with that, he, he talks about kneeling before the father from whom every family in heaven and on earth derive their name. Paul, uh, it, th there is a global piece to Ephesians because he's talking about the, the church, the body of Christ. So this 
not simply a local congregation, although it is, but there's also then this sense that you're part of something bigger than what you just see around you. And then, you know, just how, how you along with everyone else, all the Lord's people grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ um, that, that you can't wrap your mind around, that, that surpasses knowledge. And that hanging on to that and the truth you're seated with Christ, um, you, you've been raised with Christ, um, I think speaks to our time of anxiety um, today in, in new and, and important ways. Yeah, very much so. Um, I had asked, uh, I, I think maybe I had asked a question earlier about kind of Paul's structure of the letter. Um, I, I, I think I might have sent that one to you. Um, you did, yes. And now that we're kind of at the end of chapter three here, um, what what's the significance of the kinds of things that Paul says in chapters one, two, and three, and what appears to be kind of a transition in chapters four, five, and six uh, for folks who maybe don't know the chapters or, or the contents off the top of their heads very well. Help us kind of see, is, is Paul doing something different in the first half and then transitions to do something a little bit different in the second half? Well, I think the the language, he, he uses more command type verbs to do this, to not do that uh, in the chapters four and five, for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there, uh, it used to be stated that, you know, chapters one through three are kind of the doctrine part, and then four through six is the ethics part. And sometimes, I don't know if people meant it this way, but I think sometimes that kind of division was interpreted at, okay, the really important meaty stuff is the first three uh, chapters. And then, you know, you should act nice and good. And so Paul tells us <laughs> that in the last, but I, yeah. I think more today, people are saying, you know, the, the doctrine and the ethics are really woven together yeah. much more. He, he's kind of telling us this drama of redemption, if you will, at the beginning, mm-hmm. um, but he shows us how we fit in all the time, even, you know, at the very beginning in chapter one, you know, he predestined us for adoption to be his children. Um, that's, that's right there in verse five yeah. of chapter one. So there's a, there's an immediacy, this, this rich doctrine has, is tightly connected for Paul with who we are, what it means for us. So it's not kind of abstract, esoteric, um, as fun as that might be to kind of just speculate and and to ponder uh, who God is. Paul makes sure that he focuses on how then it matters to us. And so I think the, and then chapter three, some people even see this as a digression you know, Paul talking about his imprisonment. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I, I would say that, again, he's trying to explain what it means to be in Christ, what it means for these predominantly Gentile believers to be part of and, and have a heritage as members of the people of God, which stretches back uh, into uh, the Old Testament to the time of Abraham. Um, Paul doesn't bring that all of that up in Ephesians, but he will in Romans and in First Corinthians yeah. and other and other letters. So that's uh, you know what he what he would be pulling on here, and and so he's he's trying to describe his own role in this drama of redemption that he's laying out. Yeah, especially related to this term of adoption, like you mentioned there in uh, in chapter one. The, the practice of adoption in the ancient world was a very culturally significant practice. I mean, we, we, we have a pretty famous emperor, uh, yeah, at least one, right, who was yes. adopted, yes. Um, you know, the emperor <laughs> Augustus, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, and, um, you know, enjoyed all the rights and privileges of, uh, of being part of Julius Caesar's family, and you mentioned how, you know, Traditionally, chapters one, two, and three have been 
described as sort of the doctrinal chapters, chapters four and five, and maybe some parts of six are sort of the ethical chapters. Um, I can see how even in chapter one right there, where Paul is mentioning adoption, well, adoption means a bringing into, bringing into a family. And you just mentioned the, you know, the, the, the Israelite and Jewish heritage bring into a family or bringing into somebody that has a heritage as you have been adopted, you now have a new heritage. And with that new family, right? Yes. There is a yes. set of expectations. Right. And oh, let me get to those in chapters uh, four and five here. <laughs> exactly. Yes. Yes. You're absolutely right. And also in chapter two, where he will talk about in 19, you're no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with mm -hmm. God's people, members of his household. Yeah. I some I remember I, I was basically a perfect child, you know, growing up. <laughs> <clears throat> anyway, but uh, well, do we have any of your siblings here who can <laughs> who can vouch for that? <laughs> uh, but I I remember one time my grandma saying to me, I've talked about my grandma a lot today on this podcast. She's such a wonderful person who um, uh, just loved me very much and very well. Um, anyway, I remember grandma one time saying to me, I might've been around eight years old, 10 years old, something like that. And my maiden name is Harrison. So I did something, I don't know what I did. And she said to me, honey, Harrison's don't do that. Mm. And I realized she was helping me understand right from wrong, but tying it with a sense of uh, appropriateness. Our family is, uh, does this and it doesn't do that. And I sometimes see that or hear her voice a bit in Ephesians where Paul is saying, okay, now you're part of this family and here's how we behave, right? Here, here's what we do. Here's what we don't do. Um, and not, my grandma wasn't, shaking her finger at me or, um, you know, ridiculing me. Uh, she was teaching me this, yeah. this is what it means uh, to be, um, to be part of, to be part of this family. Yeah. And I think that's what Paul's doing for the Ephesians. Cause a lot of these Gentiles would not have understood the kinds of moral expectations, especially around, um, issues of social hierarchy, mm -hmm. issues of uh, sexual appropriateness, uh, certain things that the wider Greco-Roman world, um, uh, you know, they, they just would not have followed what, um, what Jesus had taught and what Paul was trying to teach them. Yeah, yeah. Fans of Lord of the Rings will be reminded of the scene where Bilbo is talking to Frodo and he's mentioning some foolishness uh, you know, from one of the other families and says, well, of course not. You're a Baggins. Exactly. Same concept. Exactly. Yeah. Yep. Same concept. Uh, as we kind of near the end of our, near the end of our time, um, I wanted to ask uh, just a couple more things. And uh, if you want to give us just kind of one for each, uh, I, I think that'll be, that'll be great. Um, what are some maybe unique contributions? That, uh, that Ephesians makes to, to the New Testament? Well, we have touched on it um, already, but I do think uh, in chapter two, being seated with Christ, erased with Christ, seated with Christ in the heavenlies, I think uh, putting a, another layer on the ascension, which we know from Acts yeah. one happened, but I think that reality for us is, uh, is very helpful. Um, I think... The, the language of Christ is our peace and he made the two one. That's a call that the church should receive every generation um, as this call to unity, but not sameness, unity. Mm -hmm. um, throughout the letter, it will be clear that, that Jews and Gentiles remain as such, but yet they are made one uh, in Christ. Um, and so... A, a unity in Christ instead of making everyone the same. I would say those would be two things that the uh, that Ephesians is uh, brings to us. Yeah, I, I'm not used to thinking about the ascension as kind of a corporate event, but by connecting it to what you've mentioned here about how we're seated in Christ, it in a way, right? We're not. We have not ascended 
to the right hand of the Father in the same way that Jesus has, but in a way we are seated uh, alongside or, or with Christ in the presence of Christ, however you exactly want to nuance those prepositions there. Yeah, I, when you tied in the word, when you mentioned the word ascension, it's like, oh, it's kind of an interpersonal thing. It's not strictly individual. And again, making proper, right, making right, careful yes. kind of nuances for that. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. But, uh, I thank you for that insight. That was, I, I, I like that. Um, next time I teach Ephesians, I'll be sure to, to bring that in. <laughs> um, last thing I want to ask is um, we've got six great chapters here. What is so maybe one of your favorite passages in, uh, in Ephesians? Yeah. If you had to pick one, right? Right, right. Um, and would you be willing to tell us maybe why that's a favorite? Yeah, yeah. I think the, the uh, one that gives me such comfort is at the end of chapter three. Now to him is, who is able to do immeasurably, immeasurably more than all we can ask or imagine. Um, I, I need to be reminded of how great our God is. And Paul has just described the love that guides this one who is able to do immeasurably more than all we can ask or imagine. And according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus. Um, that I think is probably, um, I hope I live into that each day and renew my mind on that each day. Yeah. 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 Dr. Kohick, thank you so much for your time. I, this was a, this was a treat. We, I suspect we could talk about Ephesians for, <laughs> for several more hours. Oh yes. I love it. <laughs> uh, and barely scratch the surface yeah. to help folks maybe uh, have access to some of uh, the things that you are up to. You had mentioned a podcast earlier. Can you tell us about that? And yes, then I um, would you be willing to tell us about maybe some of the some of the things that you've mm -hmm. written, whether whether for a technical audience or for a more general audience? Can you share some of that? So your podcast and then maybe some other resources from yourself. Thank you. Yes. The podcast that I started a couple of months ago is called The Alabaster Jar, and it's named for uh, the woman or as john identifies her mary who um anoints jesus um before his passion mm -hmm. taking that jar of nard um so the alabaster jar encourage um listeners to check that out um i not only have i written on paul and ephesians and other you know pauline sorts of things but i've also written on women in the early church in the mm -hmm. New Testament period and the early church. And uh, a couple of my uh, thoughts have uh, found their way into Christianity today, uh, like on the Samaritan woman or on the women martyrs of the early church. So that uh, may be some, a place to go. And then I have two books, uh, one that I co-authored with uh, Amy Brown Hughes called Christian Women in the Patristic World that mm -hmm. came out in 2017. And an earlier book called Women in the World of the Earliest Christians, I think that came out in 09. And in that book, I tried to give the backdrop or the background for uh, the New Testament time period uh, with just describing, you know, what was it like to be a daughter, a mother, a wife, what kind of jobs did women have, just that sort of thing in that book. Yeah, yeah. I, I was, uh, as soon as you mentioned that, I was like, okay, I know I've got that one. I've found it on my shelf over there. Um, that book is really useful for giving a more robust picture of the kinds of things that women did and, and could do and could be expected to do in the ancient world. It's easy, I think, maybe for some folks to, um, to exaggerate some of, the, some of the harsher conditions that women often found themselves in. Uh, and it's, it might be also easy to forget how, how either unusual or how maybe not unusual it might have been for certain for, for women to have um, opportunities to do the kinds of things like we see them doing in, say, the Book of Acts. Exactly. So, yeah. And, and yeah. I, I think you did a wonderful job of, like I said, giving folks kind of a, a fuller picture uh, of that sort of thing so you can 
read the New Testament maybe with a little bit clearer eye for for some of these kinds of things. So, all right. Well, thank you so much, Kevin. This was just delightful to chat with you about Ephesians. Likewise. Likewise. Dr. Kohik, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate you joining us this afternoon. And I hope you, uh, I hope we'll have another reason to have you back on the podcast sometime again soon. It'll be delightful. Bye-bye.